preaching text this morning is from Acts 16. When Paul and Silas are thrown into prison in Philippi, an act of persecution becomes an opportunity for evangelism. And here is the reading. One day, as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune telling. While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, these men are slaves of the most high God who proclaims to you a way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days. But Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, these men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was an earthquake, so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everybody's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself since he was supposed to suppose that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. The jailer called for the lights and rushing in, he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them outside and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They answered, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all those who were in his house. At the same hour of night, he took them and washed their wounds, and then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them into the house and set food before them, and he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. The word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And let us pray. Holy Spirit, set us free from all false hopes and turn our hearts to you. Amen. Well, quite a bit of time has passed since our reading last week. We don't know the dates for certain, but it's probably been around 15 years since Paul, also known by his Hebrew name Saul, experienced that revelation of Jesus to him on the road to Damascus. And in that time, much has happened. Faith in Jesus has continued to spread with Paul himself being instrumental in this growth, planting and strengthening churches throughout Asia Minor, what we would now uh, call modern-day Turkey. And as the church has begun to expand beyond the Jewish territories of Galilee and Judea, it has also been expanding beyond the Jewish communities scattered around the Roman Empire. 
And that has begun to change the church dramatically. If you remember last week's sermon, I made the point that in those first few years, there was not yet the clear distinction between Jews and Christians that exists today. Rather than thinking of Judaism and Christianity as separate religions, as we do today, the debate about Jesus those first few years was entirely a debate within Judaism, with some Jews believing that Jesus was the promised Messiah, while other Jews believed him to be a pretender. Well, in the 15 or so intervening years, there has been a momentous shift. For the Holy Spirit has repeatedly led the apostles to evangelize not just their fellow Jews, but to Gentiles as well. And as more and more Gentiles are coming to believe in Jesus, and as more and more of them are baptized and receive the Holy Spirit, the apostles are faced with a difficult question. Can you become a Christian without first becoming a Jew? In other words, can a person faithfully follow Jesus without also submitting to the entire law of Moses? Some argued that in order to properly follow Jesus, people must live as the Pharisees, for example, lived, uh, and other observant Jews, avoiding meat from unclean animals like pigs and camels, being circumcised if they're males, avoiding clothing that's made out of mixed fabrics. Others, most notably Peter and Paul, argued that since the Holy Spirit had come to Gentiles without them first converting to Judaism, it was unnecessary to add on to them the full observance of kosher laws on top of their faith in Jesus. Well, as you can probably guess, those who were in, in agreement with Peter and Paul won out, and the leaders of the church in Jerusalem wrote a letter to the other churches instructing them to let the Gentile believers remain as they are. Now, to us today, this doesn't seem like much. It seems sort of straightforward. Uh, we're accustomed to thinking of Christianity as distinct from Judaism, but to the early church, this was a radical idea indeed, that faith in Jesus transcended these religious categories of Jew and Gentile, enabling both Jewish and Gentile believers to remain as they are and yet to worship together as one united body of Christ. Well, after this meeting, Paul sets out uh, with Silas to revisit many of the churches with the news of this decision, and it's during this journey that they cross the Aegean Sea for the first time. They carry the gospel into Europe, into uh, modern-day uh, Macedonia and Greece. Uh, and this is where our reading for today picks up, in the Macedonian city of Philippi, with Paul and Silas having founded a church they are meeting for worship in the house of a wealthy woman named Lydia. Sounds familiar. And it is as they go about in this city, sharing the gospel with Jews and Gentiles alike, that a slave girl with a spirit of divination, that is a fortune teller, begins to follow them around, shouting out that they serve God most high and that they are proclaiming a way of salvation. Now, I can imagine that at first this kind of attention may have been welcome. I mean, after all, this slave girl is telling the truth about Paul and Silas, and perhaps it may have lent some credibility to their message. But day after day, this goes on, and finally, Paul, uh, not known for his patience, uh, becomes angry and annoyed, and he turns and he commands this spirit to leave the girl, and it does so immediately. 
and they and the slave girl finally get some peace. Although the peace does not last. For the owners of this slave girl, seeing that they'll no longer be able to make money from her fortune telling, have Paul and Silas arrested. And the magistrates have them beaten with rods and thrown into prison. And even though late that night God miraculously opens the doors for them, they stay put and save the life of their jailer, a jailer who would rather kill himself than face the dishonor and the punishment of letting his prisoners escape. Through their kindness, his whole household is saved, and they become early members of that Christian church in Philippi, the Philippian church. Well, you know, as I read this story, particularly the second half of it with Paul and Silas singing in a jail cell, willingly remaining in prison, even though their imprisonment is unjust, I can't help but think of the events of the civil rights movement some 50 years ago here in this country. And in fact, the timing of this is right on because not even three weeks ago, we passed the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And as I was reading about Dr. King, I came across this story that he told in a sermon, one which turned out to be the last sermon he would give at the church where he pastored, uh, a story which has, I think, some deep connections with our reading today. Let me just read you a part of it. Uh, Dr. King writes, I always try to do a little converting when I'm in jail. And we were in jail in Birmingham the other day, the white wardens and all, enjoyed coming around the cell to talk about the race problem. So I would get to preaching, and we would get to talking, calmly, because they wanted to talk about it. And then we got down one day to the point, that was the second or third day, to talk about where they lived and how much they were earning. And when those brothers told me what they were earning, I said, now you know what? You ought to be marching with us. You're just as poor as Negroes. And I said, you are put in the position of supporting your oppressor because through prejudice and blindness, you fail to see that the same forces that oppress Negroes in American society oppress poor white people. Now, Dr. King doesn't share in this sermon what response he got from those jailers. I doubt it was as dramatic as the response that Paul and Silas received from theirs. But it led me to ask a different question of our reading this morning than I might otherwise ask. And that question is this, who is the oppressor in this story? Who is the enemy that is causing all this harm? I mean, clearly it's not the jailer. No, as, just as Dr. King noticed about his jailers, the jailer of Paul and Silas is as much trapped by this system as they are so much so that he would rather take his own life than face the consequences of failure. Well, what about the magistrates, those leaders who uh, had Paul and Silas beaten and thrown into prison because, and I'm, I'm going to read verse 20 and 21 here, they are Jews and are advocating customs not lawful for Romans. Well, perhaps they are, but even the magistrates here are subject to the angry crowds who have brought Paul and Silas to them? Or what about the slave owners, the ones who have Paul and Silas arrested and start this whole thing? I mean, certainly they are oppressors, not only of Paul and Silas, but of this slave girl that they have been exploiting. But even they find themselves under the power of another. 
There's an interesting turn of phrase in this passage. It's near the beginning. It's in verse 19. I don't know if you noticed it. But after Paul drives out that spirit from the slave girl, we read the following. Her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone. Their hope of profit, their hope of gain. Now, that may not seem very significant to you, but when I read, or rather when I first noticed it, I was taken aback because the Bible never uses the word hope lightly. Now, for us today, we throw around the word hope all the time, and it doesn't mean much to us. I hope you have a good time, we say, or I hope I haven't offended you, or I hope the weather holds up. For us in our everyday speaking, uh, hope doesn't mean much more than wish or, or want. When I say, I hope you have a good time, I mean, I want you to have a good time. Or, I hope I haven't offended you, I mean, I want to have not offended you. Or, when I say, I hope the weather holds up, I'm saying, I want the weather to be nice. But the Bible does not use hope in this way. Whenever you see the word hope in the Bible, it's not just a wish or a desire, it's an expectation. To have a hope is to look to something or someone and to expect good from that person or that thing in that future. To have no hope, then, on the other hand, is to have no expectation that anything good will ever come. Now, from the perspective of the Bible, there is only one hope that is trustworthy and true. There is only one hope that is worth putting your trust in, and that, of course, is in God. All other hopes, all other places you look to with the expectation of receiving good things, those hopes will not set you free but enslave you. So when I saw here that phrase, their hope of making money, it struck me that not even these slave owners are free. For they too are enslaved by a false and idolatrous hope. I don't think it's well known that for the last year or so of his life, Dr. King began to focus more and more on poverty on and wealth inequality as the deep problem of American society. And in fact, by the time of his assassination, his focus had shifted from the oppression of African Americans at the hands of whites to the oppressions of poor folk, of every race, at the hand of wealthy elites, at the hand of those whose hope is set on profit or gain. As we read in one of Paul's letters, the love of money is a root of all evils. Or perhaps we could say a hope set on profit twists the heart in a similar way. And so as your pastor, I have to ask, from where do you expect your good future? Where is your hope set? Is it your retirement account? Your pension? Social security? Is it your virtues? Your hard work? Your discipline? Is it your family, children, spouse, grandchildren? Is it the general advancement of human society? Or is it something else? Because while some of those things are better than others, not one of them is able to truly carry the weight that your heart needs it to carry. 
And if any of those take the top spot, they will sooner or later turn out to be false hopes. There is finally only one hope that is true. There is only one hope which sets you free. There is only one handhold strong enough to which your heart can cling. And that is the Father who has created you and the Son who has redeemed you and the Spirit who is, even now, preaching to you. For this God has brought salvation out of imprisonment and this God has also prepared for you every good thing so that even in the injustice and the trials of the world, your heart is free to act with love and selflessness to rejoice and to praise and persist. As Paul himself will later write, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is about to be revealed in us. And again, for in hope we are saved. Amen.